you want to take your Bibles and open them again to John's Gospel. This morning we're going to pick up in chapter 16, verse 33, and we're going to read through the rest of 17, this lengthy section of God's Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given them. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with, with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, this is truly an astonishing text, an overwhelming glimpse into your own heart, your mind, for your people, for your glory. Lord, by your spirit, would you shape us and mold us by it today. Encourage us even more in our faith to live as followers of you, Christ, our King. Lord, even though this work is too much for us, it is not too much for you. Would you be at work? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. At the end of last week's text, we read the words of Jesus. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I even said last week, this is one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. I had no idea how much my friend Ben would need them. He is deeply feeling tribulation in this world. Perfectly healthy wife, suddenly sick, and then she died. And Jesus promised, in this world, you, you will have tribulation. Again and again and again, he tells us the truth. But he doesn't leave it at that. You're going to have bad things happen. He doesn't leave, leave it at that. He, he says, take heart. And then he, he, he sets something off that's kind of like a bomb. Why does he say to take heart? Why not utter devastation and wreckage in the life of the believer? Because his last statement, he says, I have overcome the world. He's won. It's over. What's astounding to me about that is he says it's over even before it begins. He's turning his face right now to the cross. And he says it's over before it even starts. Take heart. I've overcome. I win, Jesus says. I conquer death. Even Rachel's death has been overcome already in the resurrection of our Lord, promising life to the believer. From chapter 16, we turn to 17, and, and really one of the great texts in all of the Word of God. Have you ever been an eavesdropper? Or have you known an eavesdropper in your life? Do you like eavesdropping? It's overhearing something that ordinarily you would not hear and have 
perfectly no right to hear whatsoever, but you love it. There's a sense in which I think we all do. In a sense, that's what's going on for us here in John chapter 17. This is divine eavesdropping. We get to hear a conversation that's going on between Jesus and his father right before Jesus dies. We get to eavesdrop. Isn't that great? What if we were to peel back the layers and see the inner workings of the very mind of God himself? What would we see there? We would see this. We're hearing this. This prayer is as big as it gets. We know from the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that there's also a prayer recorded there before Jesus dies. In that prayer, Jesus prays for endurance in the midst of suffering. The suffering is imminent. This is where he's sweating and great drops of blood are falling out. John also gives us a prayer at the nearing the end of his gospel, but his prayer isn't about the agony of the cross. It's about everything that's coming next. John's prayer is about glory. Jesus is praying for glory. This prayer for the preservation of his disciples through the tough situations to come. And this prayer also includes, shockingly, you and me. Our Lord prays for us in this prayer. When thinking about preaching this text, I've often thought about breaking it up into several pieces, which you utterly can, but the more I've thought about it, it, it's really glorious. Also, just taking in the whole thing. Sometimes it's good just to see the forest. English clergyman Anthony Burgess, uh, I read early in the week, preached 145 sermons on John 17. I am not going to do that. It is a chapter in scripture in which I would love and consider coming back to and focusing in on more closely. But I think it's helpful for us to get the sweeping scale of what Jesus prays here. This, again, this prayer is a peek into the very heart of God. What is, what is the God-man thinking before he goes to the cross? He knows full well what's coming. We don't have to, we don't have to wonder. It's, it's given to us right here. This prayer shows us the priorities of Christ. First, he prays for himself and his glory. Then he prays for his disciples. And lastly, he prays for you and me. First, he prays for himself and his father's glory. The tie that binds, it's like concentric circles is the best way to put all these parts. They're very clear parts. They're broken up for us, but it's circles that go out and they overlap on each other. And the first overlapping theme that ties them all together is glory. The glory of God revealed in the person of Christ. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus prays with his eyes open, lifting his eyes to heaven. And then he prays for glory. Glorify your son that the son can glorify the father. The timing of this prayer is utterly crucial to understand its weight. Jesus opens by saying, this is it. The hour is here. The long-awaited hour of John has emerged. In one sense, this is the end of the world. We're invited to see this, these events of the, the crucifixion of the very Son of God as the end of the world. It's here. The end of the world is happening in the cross. But it's also the dawning of a new age. Seventeen times before this, in John, we have this reference to an hour that's coming. And that's not when somebody's looking at the time saying, I wonder what time it is. That's 17 times that John has again and again and again pointed us to the end of the world. It's coming. The end of the world as we know it is coming. It's coming. It's coming. And Jesus opens his prayer by saying that it's here. And, and he's praying that this would be utterly glorious. But what is this hour that would glorify the Son and the Father? And here's the surprising thing. It's death. This is, this is what's shocking about this prayer for, for ultimate glory. Father to Son and Son to Father. What would be so big and grand that we could see His glory? And what happens next? And what is this hour? It's death. It's betrayal, it's mocking, it's flogging, it's a crown of thorns, it's a purple robe, it's a Roman cross, it's nails through hands and feet. It is the hour of unspeakable shame for our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's looming. But that's what he's praying about. The hour of glory has come. This most shameful, horrible, terrible event is simultaneously the most glorious event ever for sinners. It's one and the same event. It's blazing glory. It's light which is unstoppable. It is a shining beam coming into the darkness. Jesus is praying that this time in his life would blaze with glory to the Father and Father to the Son. And it absolutely does but it's death. Isn't that the truth of the gospel, though? Simultaneously, the worst thing that could ever happen, that the very Son of God would have to die. But the beauty is, He, he died to save sinners like you and me. This is the hour that we've been waiting for. The very... Carson says that the very event by which the Son of God was being lifted up in horrible agony and shame was that for which he would be praised around the world by men and women whose sins he had borne. It's collapsed. It's one and the same.
That's why 2,000 years later we sing in, in the face of the death of a friend. Today we sing in defiant hope because this is true. Because this hour of glory has come. Because God answered this prayer of the Son. Today the glory of the Father and the Son seen through the cross and resurrection. This glory is the centerpiece of Jesus' prayer. And every single prayer that is true has the glory of God in view. Every single one of them include the prayers that you pray or I pray. What was the petition of Moses that we heard earlier? Lord, show me your glory. What would we expect that glory to look like? Incredible power on display? Yes. But throughout John's gospel, we've been given subtle little glimpses of the the true glory of Christ. Remember the story that the woman... Jesus with the woman at the well. There we see the blazing glory of Christ on display, but where is he? He's seated by a well in the middle of the day, and he's hot, and he's thirsty, and he needs to be refreshed. Yet he looks at the Samaritan woman in that place, and he tells her that He has something to give her, something to drink. And if she drinks of him, she will never be thirsty again. It's glory. And you're like, it's a a thirsty man. Glory. The glory that Christ came to give is an upside down glory. We have to remember who he is and what he came to do in order to see his glory. We have to have eyes to see and ears to hear of this glory. What does Christ do with all this glory? We see him in this prayer. The trajectory of the whole prayer is glory. And this glory is expressed time and time again in giving, giving, giving. John tells us that Jesus has all authority over flesh to give eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave the Son. So where where do we need to look again and again and again to see the glory of Christ? It's in his giving. Sixteen times alone in this prayer, in chapter 17, is some form of the verb to give. The glory of God is seen in giving. Giving. Giving, giving, all the way back in Genesis 3, when man fell, God comes into the fall and gives. He gives clothes to the naked. He gives a promise that he will ultimately crush evil. He gives. He's been giving ever since. He gives again and again and again. What is the very last vision we see in all of the scriptures, the end of Revelation? There we see a throne of Almighty God himself. 
And from that throne flows a vast river that never stops. From the throne of God for eternity, there will be giving. He is flowing out in blessing for eternity. His glory is seen in giving. I'm told that Jesus has authority over all flesh to give eternal life. And what exactly is eternal life? He defines it. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice closely that Jesus doesn't say that knowing God will lead to life. Like, like a series and as dominoes fall. No, he says that this is eternal life. To know God and to know Christ. He doesn't say you have to wait on Christ to have eternal life. Eternal life is to know him. Now it's in the present. Eternal life isn't just this future reality for believers. It was present with Rachel Wheeler when she was alive. She had, she possessed eternal life. And then when her body failed and she stepped into glory, she, she did so possessing this life. It's not a waited for reality. So the pure question comes to us, is this us? Do we know God the Father? Do we know God the Son? To know Him is to have life. Jesus concludes this part of His prayer about glory. This way I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Why is he talking about this work that he's been given to do? What work did God deploy the Son into the world to, to accomplish? In a sense, you can see all the scriptures on, on a plane of, of work. This is what Adam was given to do in the garden. What was that work? It was this. It was singular. Full and complete obedience to God. That was the work. The statement that Jesus is making here is the statement that goes all the way back to, to the beginning with Adam. He's saying the work that he fell in, I came to finish. He could not complete it. And guess what? You can't complete it, and I sure can't complete it. Perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And Jesus says at the end of his life, I've done it. I've done it. In every way that he failed in the covenant of works, I have succeeded. I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Truly glorious. This glory that he is asking for is the glory of the Trinity itself. Uniting Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect fullness and perfect fellowship. It's hard to imagine. We talked about this in the communicants class this morning a little bit. All existence. Everything in the universe that exists, exists because of this glory. This triune God existing in glory. Without this, nothing would exist. 
This glory that he's praying for doesn't get any bigger, wider, deeper. Having prayed for himself and his glory, Jesus then turns and he begins to pray for his disciples. Verses verse 6 through 19, he sets up this section, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus uses this term world, and he's called these people out of the world. Just like give is this on repeat 16 times, the term world is used here 17 times. 13 times in this section alone. We've heard the term world used several times in John's gospel. This term doesn't just refer to planet Earth or even the cosmos, but to humanity itself and in many places uh, to the human resistance to God. Jesus is seen in this prayer as saving people out of the world. Just as he was sent into the world by the Father, he sends his disciples into the world. He's deploying them back into the world to bear the gospel, to bear light. Look at verses 16 and 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Look, Jesus is not saying that this glory is going in this trajectory of escapism. Where is all this glory going for his disciples? He's saying, I'm doing the same thing that you, Father, did with me. I'm sending my my people back into the world. We don't believe and then just, we get zapped out of here. He's not doing that. He's chosen another plan. It's not for his church to flee the world, the sinful world. That's not his prayer, but he he prays that we would be kept as we live our lives in the world, that we would be kept from evil. Sometimes I think as Christians, we all want to just escape. Lord, just let me live in my own bubble where everything is safe and easy and the world can, can leave us alone and we'll leave them alone and we'll be fine. That is not what Jesus prays. In this section, he prays the exact opposite. Go back in to the world. Not escapism. Jesus knows the firestorm that his own death and resurrection will create. He knows it's going to shape and impact his followers the, the rest of their life. They will utterly be changed forever by these events that are coming and Jesus knows it well. What does it look like when the gospel of Jesus Christ, this glory gets deployed into the world? Acts 17, I love this text. Paul and others planting churches. This time they were in Thessalonica and an accusation came against them. Listen, listen to this. They dragged Jason And some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. This is what Jesus is praying for. That his glory would go through his followers into a lost and dying world and turn it upside down. Sharing the gospel 
sharing Christ and his glory with people who don't know him is turning the world upside down. It's utterly shaping everything. Just as Jesus was sent into the world by the Father, now he is praying that his followers, his disciples, would be sent into the world bringing light and truth. The disciples know that God has given Jesus all things. And this is, this is kind of what's in their backpack with them as they go. They know that Jesus has been given everything from the Father, and they know that they have Jesus. The disciples know that they have the truth in Christ given by the Father. This is all the things in that middle section that the disciples believed, not just the word of Christ, but the word of the Father. The disciples are included in glory. In verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. He prays all of this so that the mission of salvation will continue on in the world. And he saves people not to snatch them out of the world, but to send them back in as bearers of light. Listen, if you're here and you're a believer, it's because this prayer has been effectual. This prayer has been answered. If you glimpse the the glory of Christ today, it's because this prayer of Jesus has been effectual in your life. So Jesus praying that the Father would protect his people and preserve them in the world that is hostile to, hostile to the gospel. This, to this end, Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify his disciples in truth. How in the world are we going to persevere as we live our lives in a sinful and hostile world? Jesus prays, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Sanctification is that process. Sanctified in the truth. Sanctification is not just some cold and distant reality. It is relational. It is getting to know the person of Christ. The Father and the Son and the Spirit is learning about Him. But not just learning facts. It's relational Sanctification is also moral. So we are sanctified, we grow in holiness and purity in our attitudes and thoughts and actions more and more. We become aware of our own sin and we become more and more aware of the beauty and glory of Christ. This is the process of us being sanctified in the world. And he tells us how it happens. It happens in the truth, specifically the word of God shaping our lives. A a quick question for reflection is this. What shapes your life most? I mean, really, it's it's a great question. It's one that I wrestled with early in the week reading this. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What shapes me most? What influences the way that you think and the way that you live? Is it your friends at school? Is it social media? Is it your colleagues at work? Is it the latest news story? Is it your particular brand of political ideology given to you? What influences your life most? Sanctify them, he prays. 
Sanctify them in truth. The reality is we're all being shaped. And here Jesus is praying to the Father that we would be shaped most by truth. Are we taking in his word? Are we letting it shape our life? This is why Jesus leaves us in the world. So that we could be sanctified in truth and and live as salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. Another question that we could ask is something like this. How has the gospel itself shaped your life? The, the way that you actually live. Has knowing Christ changed the way that you live life? In this central portion of Jesus' prayer, he's praying for the disciples, and the reality is they only have two options. Option one is living a life that accords with the truth of who Christ is. Living life in accordance with the word of God. And option two is you are the world. There are no other categories in this prayer. The difference between the world and the disciples here is the word of God coming to bear in the lives of his people. So in the first section, we saw the glory and unity of God in giving. In the middle section, we see that glory going out from extending from God to his people and out into the world through the disciples in this last section, Jesus does something that should really stun us. He, he prays for us, believers who, who live today. He says this, I do not ask for these only. He's, he's, got his, he's got his cohort with him. His disciples are with him. But in this prayer, he's like, not for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Have you ever accidentally heard somebody talking about you? Not saying something bad, but saying something good. Has that ever happened to you? Like, not even eavesdropping, not that you snuck up and heard somebody, but just somebody is saying something really nice about you and your character and who you are as a person and wanting good things for you and your life, but they're not saying it to you, they're saying it to someone else. What do you feel when that happens? For me, it just like immediately makes me warm inside. Like from my cold fingers to my cold toes, I just fill up with warmth. What a great thing. You're not fishing for a compliment. You're not fishing for good things to be said about you. Somebody's just saying them. And here we hear Jesus doing that very thing for us. That is exactly what's going on. He is saying good things and wanting good things and praying good things and we are on his mind. It's, a, it's astonishing. Here's his prayer list. First, he plays, prays for unity, but not just any, any unity. He prays for unity for his people that comes from the Son and the Father and how they are together just as, as they are so intertwined from all eternity past, that's what he prays for us, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here the plea extends. This glory, this unity of Father and Son, he is extending that to us. Bound together. 
That's the first part of his prayer request. Smash them together as tight as we're smashed together. Second, 22 and 23, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. First, unity, then glory. That's his prayer list for us. That we would be one. And that our being one would reveal glory to the world. This is one of the most astonishing things that we can read in the scriptures. He prays for his own glory. Glory with the Father. But he doesn't leave it there. He prays glory for us. To revel, to share in the glory that he reveals in his life and death and resurrection. And in light of that, he's praying that we would be unified. How is the... So earlier I asked the generic question, has the gospel impacted you at all? Here I would ask, in, in reference to this prayer, how has the gospel shaped how you view others? Specifically, brothers and sisters in Christ. How has the gospel shaped the way you view other people in this room? Despite issues that would divide us and rip us apart, Jesus prays that we would be a unified whole. Why does he pray this? He says that the world is going to be watching. And what they see when they look at Christians is going to matter to them. And they're either going to say, whoa, that's really amazing. I'm drawn to that because they love each other so well. Or, man, they hate each other. They're, they're worse than my, my coworkers at my job. And I want nothing to do with them. Do, do you see that's what he's praying He's not praying for some sense of false unity, but he's saying, bind them together so that when the world looks, they're going to be astonished at how well they do together. If this language of Jesus praying for the church doesn't soften our hearts for one another, what, what will do that? We can't produce this unity. Jesus isn't telling us to go create this unity. He's saying you are unified. Live Live in light of that. Live out the reality of the unity that you have been given by God himself. It's not... Listen, it's not our common interest in this room that really unifies us. It's not that we all enjoy the the same hobbies, that we all drive the same cars, that we all live on the same street or have the same socioeconomic status. It's not that we go to the same schools. It's not that all Christians have the, the same race or language. What unifies the body of Christ is Him. It's 
Christ himself. Has this prayer of Christ failed? You're like, man, we're just all... We have 50 different denominations in Shreveport alone. Clearly something has gone terribly wrong. That's, that's, that's not unified. That's not the unity he's praying for. He's praying for the unity of his people. He's praying for true believers in him unified and his prayer is utterly effective through all of history this prayer has been effective for the invisible church the church militant true believers in Christ this has and will be the tie that always binds the church together it's Christ Galatians 3 for as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ Then he says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. His prayer is utterly effectual. He he has made us one. So hear me say it one more time. Jesus has already created this unity. We're not being asked to, to create unity. We're being asked to live in light of it. This is the great leveler of all of human existence. It's it's not an economic idea. It's not a political philosophy. It's a person. Jesus goes further. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundations of the world. What did the fall do? Think about it in terms, again, the macro terms in all of Scripture. The fall separated us from God and from one another. Right? This ripping apart, this rending apart of man to God and man to man happened in the fall. And see the the glory of the end of this prayer. He's praying that everything that was ripped apart in the fall would be bound back together in him. Has that failed? No. What we lost in the garden is being restored by Christ. So Jesus prays for our glory our unity, our presence with Him, that we would be with Him. Finally, that we would be wrapped up in the very love of God Himself. Jesus prays several prayers. One of my favorites in thinking about this text is when He prays for... Do you remember when Peter was having a really hard time? I think a lot of us can maybe empathize or sympathize with Peter. He could be a loud mouth. 
He could also be the, the first one to act. When Jesus said to jump, he, he says, how far? Sometimes he gets, he gets a bad rap. Can you remember what Jesus tells Peter about Satan? Listen to this in Luke 22. He often called him Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And that is not a good thing. Satan wants you. But what does he say next? Do you remember that text? But I have prayed for you, he says, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Beautiful text. And listen, child of God, in John 17, we have this. Jesus has prayed for you. Isn't that beautiful? It's glorious. Listen to his prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for praying for us. Um, thank you for um, the glory, the beauty of this prayer that you invite us into. That in it we can see the truth of your words that in this world we will have trouble, but we are invited, Lord, to take heart, and we do in these words, we take heart, for you have overcome the world. Lord, shape us, give us incredible unity with your church militant. We pray in Christ's name, amen.